A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Welcome to the Hilo, the weekly conversation between Dolly Alderton and Pandora Sykes. Welcome, Panda. Quick quizzy. Did you listen to that Abba song that I sent you? Yes, I, I did watch it with you holding a gun to my head. No, I voluntarily watched it. I love a bit of Abba. How good is that song? I can't process how good it is. It's called, for our listeners, it's called Head Over Heels. I was listening to their album, The Visitors, and I found it. I haven't listened to it for years. And truly, I haven't listened to anything else for the past seven days. The minute it ends, back to the beginning. I went on a three-hour walk last night, and all I did was listen to it back to back. You always do that with music, though. I find it quite strange. Maybe I know. It's not. Maybe that's what normal music fans do. I think I, think I find the lyrics so compelling. She's extreme, if you know what I mean. What does that mean? Answers into the Hilo show at gmail.com. I think you should get that on a t-shirt. Front, she's extreme. <laughs> Back, if you know what I mean. Or a cushion. On one side, she's extreme. And then they turn it over. Perhaps they've been snuggled there for a few hours getting to know you. And then they turn it over, if you know what I mean. And they think, I do. I do know what you mean. How's that? <laughs> it's been a week, hasn't it? <laughs> been a year yeah. <laughs> and now the shops are opening again and slowly some of us are creepy creeping back towards a social life I say creeping because it's definitely quite tentative for many of us yes creeping at two meter distances it's so funny when you when you go to the parks and you see people greet each other for the first time obviously in months and months <laughs> it's just so sweet watching them kind of waving passionately at each other desperate to hug and obviously they can't yet I think people are doing what they would do if they were running towards a glass sliding door which is really excitingly seeing one another running full pelt and then stopping shy yes smashing and and almost like sort of being pressed up against the surface it's sort of this like involuntary like flattening that you do <laughs> I can't even like it's I've got exactly in my head exactly exact, and then and then it's kind of awkward like oh can't go any further or yeah. like I have air shaken hands with people in a work capacity which is yeah. so geeky <laughs> <laughs> I saw Farley my oldest and closest friend for the first time this weekend in three months longest we've ever gone in our entire lives without seeing each other the reunion was I would say entirely emotionless <laughs> it's quite interesting I don't know, I don't know why <laughs> it is it we is were weird, both, isn't it? we were both so disappointed because I'd had to walk to meet her so I just needed a piss really so I just couldn't really the first thing I said to her was I need a piss and she was like oh it's a lovely reunion 
Yeah, I know. I, I I know what you mean. I think so much time has passed that everyone's gone through the sort of heart brimming. I just can't wait to hold you again. And now yeah, it's like, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay, well we're not actually going to run into each other's arms. It's going to be really un dramatic and un. It's not going to be a Richard Curtis reunion, is it? No, I think she didn't love the fact I pointed out that she was the first person that I'd been reunited with for whom I didn't shed a single tear. <laughs> but I'm not surprised. That's the most unhelpful revelation anyone's I know. ever shared. But she was the same with me. Do you know what I think it is? We've just talked so much the last three months, whether doesn't it's Zoom matter. or someone FaceTime be, or... doesn't matter how unemotional someone is with you. You must never admit that you felt exactly the same. You must always, always give more. Anyway. <laughs> I know. I know, I could have put on a bit of a more of a show. Bit of a show. Sorry if you're listening, Farley. Speaking of putting on a show, I was so thrilled to hear that someone bought their partner a goat Zoom and that it cheered him right up. Oh, yes, I saw this, one of our listeners. So for a fiver to remind anyone, um, I think it was from three episodes ago, Dolly found... Um, a website where you can hire a goat for your Zoom, which I think means that you're in one square, friends in another square, goats in another square. Yeah, it's, it's a farm that have it's a farm that have been affected by COVID. So they're trying to kind of come up with ingenious ways of making money at the moment. And you can sort of shop for your goat. There's like a menu of goats, and you can choose one. But not in an, you don't eat them or anything. They literally just appear on <laughs> Zoom. I don't want anyone to think they have any sort of ownership. It's not sponsorship. No. It's not, you don't get to ride the goat. You don't get to send it Christmas outfits. It, you're just like... You men- don't get goat, you don't it's, get goat updates. It's like hiring a speaker for your event. That's what the goat is. So just keep that in exactly. mind. I've collected three natty little anecdotes this week from England and Ireland that I've been looking forward to sharing with you, Panda. The first is that Marmite have had to stop producing their larger jars of the product because of pubs closing due to lockdown. Because Marmite producers haven't been able to get hold of brewer's yeast, which is a key ingredient. I know. I thought you were going to say it's because pubs also sell Marmite toast. And I was honestly sitting here with knitted brow (laughs) thinking, if I'd known that... In the decade previous, I'd have had a lot more fun in a pub. No, but isn't that interesting? I didn't yeah. know that, like, That's Marmite really is made from the offcuts. Oh, I, I think it's made from all sorts of curious things. Not as curious as Bovril. That's made of even more curious things. But thank you very much for that. Also, my favourite type of story. Guess what it's about? A bear. Animals. Yep. The red squirrel is doing an Irish comeback tour. The animal which was classed as near-threatened 10 years ago is thought to be re-emerging in many parts of the country owing to a fall in the number of grey squirrels which are seen as the prey of pine martins. Do you know what a pine martin is? No, but I know all about the grey-red squirrel war. Have a look at what the pine martin looks like. I think you will be rather fond of them. In my head, they look like a pangolin. They've got little bear faces. <gasps> Cute, oh, right? Sweet. Yes, it looks a bit like my son. So. <laughs> oh, not when squirrels. it's cross. Have you seen when it's cross? No, let me look Oof. up cross pine martin. Like a vicious little weenie baby. They look a little bit like a stoat. 
Oh, yes, it does look a little bit vicious when it's cross. I mean, we all look, they look quite magical, I think. Quite, quite ferrety. Yeah, in some pictures they look heavenly. In others, they look a bit like a dog. Anyway, fun as this is for people listening. <laughs> have you seen, have you ever seen a red squirrel? I was about to instinctively say yes, but I could very easily be lying. I just assume I have. But I've definitely seen a grey one, Dolly. I think I have seen one, but I was about five years old and I've never seen one since. Anyway, grey squirrels were introduced to Ireland in the 1800s and they compete with red squirrels for food. And grey squirrels carry smallpox, which is fatal to red squirrels. So the prominence, as we all know, the prominence of grey squirrels is what has led to the decrease in red squirrels. However, a new report has said that an increase in the number of pine martin, which had previously almost disappeared in Ireland, was linked to the demise of the grey squirrel. The number of pine martins have been increasing since it was made an offence to capture or kill them without a licence since 1976. So there's this really interesting chain reaction going on that pine martins have increased because they're not being hunted they're hunting the grey squirrel, and then that means the red squirrel can thrive. It's so interesting what changes have been made in the animal kingdom and the n- natural kingdom. Is that what nature's called? Don't know. Basically, sorry, I've basically had a, I've basically had a lobotomy. I've, or I've <laughs> lobotomised myself. Anyway, the natural so- kingdom sounds like a tent at Glastonbury. <laughs> Oh, God, you can keep your natural kingdom. Anyway, it's been very interesting seeing the changes that have happened during the pandemic, like the fish in Venice and the pine martins on Google. Do you know, my brother was walking through St. James's Park last week and he took a picture. Maybe I'll include it on the Hilo's Twitter account, actually. He took a picture of a grey squirrel that jumped onto his leg and clung onto him. I thought you were going to say shaking hands with a red squirrel. In peace talks. No, because apparently they're getting much clingier with humans, grey squirrels, because there's been so little, like, food and litter left on the ground for them to feast on in London. So now they're just hopping straight on the old legs. So watch out when you're walking through London parks. God, how interesting. Third and final anecdote. I think you'll like this one, Panda. Pink gin lady has been spotted again. She has not. She has, and it's glorious. Exactly one year since her first sighting on a tube. For anyone unfamiliar with the story, the woman that became an overnight icon and was dubbed Pink Gin Lady was spotted drinking pink gin from a wine glass on the Northern Line last year while wearing sunglasses, jeweled flip-flops and socks. And she's back, spotted drinking pink wine from a wine glass by the Arsenal Stadium with what appears to be a large purple towel on her head. This time she wore a pink top and shorts, along with the same flip-flops and sunglasses as before. We will post a photo of her in all her glory on the Hilo's Twitter account. Can I just check, does Pink Gin Lady like being memed? Like, was she aware she was having a I did wonder this. Taken? I've never seen her make any public comment. So I do wonder, I did think, like, are we? are we... Violating the privacy of Pink Gin Lady to sit. She's literally sitting on the E of the Arsenal, <laughs> the Arsenal letters, the big sign outside the yeah, stadium. That's an interesting one. You know, maybe that's, maybe we shouldn't post the picture until we hear um, a statement from her. Because that would be, I know, it's quite strange, isn't it? Imagine that you've accidentally turned into a meme and then people are updating on your 
whereabouts. Yeah. Like she's, she's, you know, managing to have maybe her first glass of wine outside in God knows how long. Riveted by the towel on her head, though. I'm glad she keeps surprising us with her sartorial choices. I know, but she's just, there's something about her. She holds herself so elegantly. The purple towel sounds like it shouldn't work, but she just looks like friggin' Audrey Hepburn. <laughs> well, here's the pink gin lady. And also, I've said it once, I'll say it again. She seems to reappear at the same time as you start to reappear. <laughs> Never been seen in the same room. Never been seen in the same room or in the same park or on the same field. <laughs> Just leave it there. The author and philanthropist J.K. Rowling was accused of transphobia last week. It's been discussed everywhere from broadsheets to websites, social media, after she posted a series of tweets conflating gender and sex. I don't want to say that she stoked the trans debate because I think we need to think really carefully how we frame discourse and the language we use about someone's lived experience. The mm. idea that we can debate their existence is extremely offensive, um, especially given that much of it's done by people who have no idea uh, what that lived experience is or what that existence feels like or that identity. And I think we have to remember that when we're talking about a minority of people whose safety is at a much higher risk. I do also want to mention that The Sun's cover, where they interviewed her abusive ex-husband who admitted that he slapped her and didn't regret it, was also disgusting. It's possible to think that her comments are misguided and inflammatory, whilst also thinking it's utterly revolting that a mainstream publication thought that it was appropriate to dig up a man that, for their own safety her and her daughter no longer see it's it's definitely possible to hold those hold those two opinions at the same time a number of trans women wrote a letter public letter to the sun saying that while they found her views on trans women abhorrent that headline was cruel and completely unacceptable yeah i mean munro uh, bergdorf as well who i really recommend uh, following on um social media uh, she shares a lot of information and food for thought. She writes regularly for news publications. She's an activist and L'Oreal ambassador. And she wrote, and I can't remember where exactly, I'm sorry, but she wrote that uh, cancelling JK Rowling is, is not the answer. Just cancelling people doesn't really help to further the dialogue. What does help, of course, is reading and listening um, around the subject, listening to trans people rather than keeping your conversations, uh, you know, if you're a cisgender person having conversations about trans issues with other cisgender people. It's a fairly limited way to learn about this. Uh, in keeping with our newish podcast format, which focuses on cultural resources rather than news updates, I thought that the best way to cover this is to suggest some resources for learning more. I watched Seahorse this week, which is a really moving documentary that came out last year about a trans man named Freddie who gives birth to his son after realising that he really wanted a child and he was biologically able just to have one. So that for him was the easiest route to have one. And the documentary follows uh, his journey from deciding to have a child um, until a couple of months after the baby is born. And... He says that pregnancy is a means to an end. He just wants to have the child. He's not looking forward to the process. But the journey is actually a much bigger one for him about identity and also so much more. It's about motherhood. The relationship between his mother and him is utterly beautiful. She's such a supportive 
inspiring mother really inspired me as a mother and it's also a lot of a kind of a discourse on pregnancy he says at one point which I found really interesting if all men were pregnant we'd never stop talking about it and I found that interesting because I think how difficult pregnancy is has sort of been culturally buried because it's considered quite boring um and as and as he says it's considered a kind of means to an end like well if you want a child you just have to get on with it but it is a very long stretch of time particularly for someone who really feels like they're losing their identity and as Freddie explores it's it's hard he finds it increasingly difficult to separate his psychology and his physicality as his body changes you know he's not taking testosterone obviously during that time I think this idea that when you something else I think the documentary brought up which is universal Freddie's experience is 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 not unique but it is very rare but what is universal is that it's really not true and I do see this idea sometimes it's really not true that when you choose to have a child that you never doubt your decision that you never feel overwhelmed or out of your depth Uh, that's just a universal falsehood and I thought I think what is beautiful about this documentary and why I think it's a really good place to start for someone who wants to learn more is that it shows beautifully that we are very different, all of us as people, but we are also very alike. It's a film that subtly and narratively explores that, but the differences are no scarier than the likenesses. You know, this this idea of being different as something scary or causing us discomfort I think the film makes you think a lot about that the bit where his son was born had me in floods of tears and dare I say it nostalgic for birth anyway I think if you're struggling to understand dialogue around gender and sex um this is an excellent and very moving documentary and is a yeah it's a beautiful and timeless film where did you watch that I struggled to find it online actually I think it was initially on iPlayer um, and then, annoyingly, it's not in Sky Store, but for anyone who does want to watch it, I rented it for three ninety nine on Vimeo. It's the first time I've ever done that. Oh. Did you know you could rent videos no. on Vimeo? No, I didn't. I'll watch it on there. A listener also wrote in recommending the autobiography Amateur, written by the trans boxer Thomas Page McBee. And Juno Dawson, former guest of the High Lows, uh, The Gender Games is another great one. Thank you so much for your recommendations please do continue to send them in as pandora said we will not understand the trans community by debating their existence but by listening to their stories and reading their stories and paying attention to their experiences and on the subject of recommendations i've got another mentorship program to recommend oh yeah sure so this is the creative network which supports socio-economic diversity in the creative industries through mentoring and access to opportunities with a 360-degree approach. So the network is designed to help progress inclusion from all sides. It creates career opportunities for young people. It offers training for employees, which I think is brilliant, and access to diverse talent for business. So there's an integration with their mentorship model of both opportunities for mentees and professionals to be matched with each other with education for mentors to help them understand the barriers faced by the people that they're coaching and the training also includes how to be an inclusive leader and how to advocate for change you can find out more about them at creativementornetwork.org are you ready to talk about sex oh <laughs> yes 
Why? <laughs> Love it when you sound nervous. It's normally the other way around <laughs> when we talk about fruitiness. I watched a programme called Sex in Lockdown, Keep Shagging and Carry On. Now, oh my God. as a side note, I do like this title. It's a new variation of the extremely over-memed Keep Calm slogan. Although I am riveted by the suggestion that all current issues can be solved by a sort of dogged dogging. Less doubling down, more kind of burrowing down. Anyway, this is hosted by Anna Richardson and it includes some quite riveting... She always pops up with those programmes. I bloody love her. Yeah, it's, uh, it includes some quite riveting pandemic fetish sex clips and the rise in corona porn, which is a bit strange, but not at all surprising. Um, and it was quite a random assortment of talking heads uh, talking about whether or not they've had more or less sex in lockdown. But I was interested, but of course, in the polls and the stats. And I wanted to see what you thought. Okay, so here are the top 10 household objects used during lockdown bonking. The locky bonky. Okay. Number 10, glass table. Number 9, vacuum cleaner. Number 8, high heels. Is that a household object? Mm. Not sure about that. 7, sponges. 6, broomsticks. 5, mirrors. 4, feather duster. 3, rubber gloves. Lush. Scarves. Again, that's a fashion item. One, the spatula. This is not true. Well, there's one thing I'm surprised about there. Only one that I've really never heard before. Can you guess what? The spatula. No, the sponges. Oh, no, the spatula can be used as a a paddle. Yes, of course. The sponges. What are you doing with the sponges? Mm. What are they doing with the sponges? Please write in and let us know. I don't want to Google it. I don't. I just don't know what I'll find. I really want to. I, what are they doing with those sponges? Oh God. Okay. Hold on. Let's have a look. Maybe they're using them like, um, like a butt plug. Maybe, like a malleable butt plug. Oh, you. Um, it. it oh, I can't. I, I don't want to. You Google it. <laughs> I'll tell you okay. quite quickly. <laughs> Now on to the other I think statistics. we finally found Pandora's boundary. <laughs> <laughs> it didn't take long. On to the other statistic. Sales in Anne Summer's outfits have unsurprisingly risen as people get creative within the confines of their own home. But Dolly, can you guess by what percentage they have risen? 30%. That is pathetic. You are not a statistician. Uh, 900 Fucking hell. So double the hot tub. That was our previous statistics just they meant so little to me before this and since these like lockdown what are people buying, what are people shoving up their arse, I just can't I can't make sense of any of these numbers. It's so interesting, isn't it? There's something more in this in statistics. What have you been enjoying this week? Alongside a multi-pack of sponges. I was entranced by a piece in the London Review of Books by Catherine Rundle about a particular breed of shark. That is unexpected. So the Greenland shark is the world's longest living vertebrate. They can live for 400 years or more. They are a fascinating species, as Catherine outlines in the piece. 
So they smell. <laughs> Their bodies have high concentrations of urea. And the urea is what makes them poisonous to humans when eaten fresh. If raw and untreated, the toxins in the flesh can render you shark drunk, giddy, staggering, slurring and vomiting. They become safe to ingest only if the meat is buried for several months and left to ferment and then hung out to dry for months more. Some more Greenland shark facts. It is slow. At full speed and with strenuous effort, it moves somewhere between 1.7 and 2.2 miles per hour. Although one of the two largest flesh-eating creatures in the sea, it has an astonishingly slow metabolism. In order to survive, a 200-kilo shark has to consume the calorific equivalent of one-and-a-half chocolate digestives a day. They live deep down in the sea and lead secret lives. So this is, this is um, something that's so interesting, kind of mysterious about them. Because they live so far down in the sea, they can live as far down as six Eiffel Towers deep. It means that there's very little that's still kind of known and understood about them. But what I loved so much about this piece is the way Catherine Rundle, who is a genius, by the way, she's mind-blowingly clever and an amazing writer. I love how she linked the longevity of the Greenland shark to the time we find ourselves in as a kind of marker and metaphor that disaster has happened before now and we have survived it and that disaster will happen again so the piece begins in 1606 a devastating pestilence swept through london the dying were boarded up in their homes with their families and a decree went out that the theatres the beer baiting yards and the brothels be closed it was then that shakespeare wrote one of his very few references to the plague catching at our precarity the dead man's knell is there scarce asked for who, and good men's lives expire before the flowers in their caps, dying or here they sicken. As he wrote, a Greenland shark who is still alive today swam untroubled through the waters of the northern seas. Its parents would have been old enough to have lived alongside Dante, its great-great-grandparents alongside Julius Caesar. For thousands of years, Greenland sharks have swum in silence, as above them the world has burned, rebuilt, and burned again. And then she ends by saying, I'm glad not to be a Greenland shark. I don't have enough thoughts to fill 500 years, but I find the very idea of them hopeful. They will see us pass through our current spinning apocalypse and the crash that will come after it, and they will see the currently unimagined things that will come after that. The transformations, revelations, the possible liberations. That is their beauty, and it's breathtaking. They go on. These slow, odorous, half-blind creatures are perhaps the closest thing to eternal this planet has to offer. I love that line about um, the world burning above them. Yeah. Yeah, and they're just business as usual. 400 years or more. Mm. I still don't like what you were talking about, the way they smell, though. <laughs> Have you got any Greenland further sharks? reading on, sh on sharks this week? I was ab, and I'm careful to say ab, as a friend recently told me that I say absolutely, which was a horrifying realisation and completely true. I've got to the age of 33 and realised I have been pronouncing it absolutely. Anyway, uh, we live and learn. I, a really common one I see is people spelling definitely, defiantly. I quite enjoy that one because it's so common. I defiantly yeah. did not say that. Anyway, yeah. I was absolutely blown away truly blown away by rick samada's book i never said i love you 
Rick is a former actor turned journalist and I Never Said I Love You is a memoir about mental illness, grief, race, identity, love, aka the heavy stuff. And yet it's also incredibly funny and warm and comforting and uplifting, um, which is, I think, a testament to an amazing book that it can be all those things at once or not at once, but within the same book. It includes some truly strange and charming details and observations. I turned down, let me count, I turned down 27 pages, which might be my record for a book that I am not reading for work purposes. So that's 27 pages of sentences or phrases or paragraphs that lodged in my throat and burned into my heart. It's such a strange and lyrical and original book. I'm really glad that you read it and loved it because I've I, it's on my list. I really want to read it. I've just heard such wonderful things about it. The way that he writes about his relationships, which he does at length with two eccentric, creative, wonderful sounding women, and the way he writes about love and sex and coupledom were my favourite parts of the book. Along with his mother's very unusual culinary choices, here's an example of a dinner she cooked him. Banana and halloumi ratatouille with carrot, pomegranate and parsley. (laughs) I asked Rick to read us an extract from I Never Said I Love You so that you can get a little taste for his extraordinary, charming book. Sexuality is a winding journey and I can only shake my head at the narrowness of my desire back then. Blind to beauty and cinnamon, caramel, chocolate, and a hundred other tones that don't sound like Starbucks extras. I love these skins now, the ones close to my own, that have absorbed a quarter century of summers and radiated back out. All that loveliness I chose to not see, the absence of imagination. Horrible to understand I was a perpetrator of the same system that annihilated me. It was not only the acts committed that were wrong. Acts withheld could be a betrayal too. I would come to realise, after this explosion of liberation, that sex was not the thing I wanted. What I wanted was acceptance, which I could not give myself. To see the sign of it with my own eyes. A message on a phone, a beckoning finger, a secret glance. That was the magic I was after. I didn't need to follow through. Once I had the affirmation I needed, more often than not, I'd drop the flirting and move on. It's hardly as if they could complain. No one had signed a contract. I hadn't promised anything. Flirting and bullying have this in common. At their most sophisticated, they operate without trace or accountability. I'm not proud of any of this time. It's as if, having realised all good sex has a little transgression in it, I mistakenly concluded that all transgression is good, I flirted with people who had partners, authority figures, friends. It didn't matter how many hours of others' time I wasted or feelings I bruised. Something someone observed in me years later. This was inconceivably after I had calmed down. It's like you're trying to make the whole world love you, one person at a time. There was no admiration in it. What's worse than a taxi with its light on who won't take anyone home? Because, of course, I had someone at home. The way I found enough comfort in my body to finally start using it was through the love of a partner who offered somewhere to live, words of encouragement, a hundred loving actions a day, who said I was beautiful and capable, 
She was the reason my attitude to my body changed, my attitude to myself. I liked who I was around her and kept that confidence with me. More than a school or the passage of time, it was a person who saved me. Lily showed me the safety of a bed and the unfolding possibilities of a body that stayed. I took that gift and scattered it. I was immature, full of arrogance and self-loathing, not ready for a relationship. I don't know why I had to disprove my own theory about the connection between love and sex. I only succeeded in making myself smaller. Oh, that bit about trying to make the whole world love you one person at a time. So devastating, but so familiar. I wanted to touch on a few of the other bits of this gorgeous memoir. I love the bit when Rick realises that it's less that his father was terribly serious, um, he was never very close to him, and more that his and his mother's daftness, his mother kept an entire cupboard filled with her collection of kinder egg toys, for example, and she sleeps in a top bunk bed, which one day she decides to just walk out of, causing rather painful injury, uh, left no space for um, his father to be silly. He writes, It wasn't that Kalamesh Samada had no silliness. It was that Aparajita and Amaturik had a surfeit of the stuff, and someone had to keep the lights on. Yeah, it's interesting how that often forces a dynamic onto a couple. That it was less an absence of something in his father and more um, mm. a lack of options. And there's another bit that I just wanted to highlight where he, because I just think this gives such a good insight into what the book offers, where he writes about falling in love with his first girlfriend, uh, Lily, an artist. She went by Lily, but I called her by her given name, Lilith, because I dug that Babylonian demonology sand. She was older, a busy artist who had lived many lives. I was a 22-year-old nothing who hadn't even lived my own, so it was sensible to keep things platonic. Then she invited me over to walk Casper, her one-eyed hound, and by the end of the day I was wearing a pink nightdress. There was flour all over the floorboards, and I stayed for six years. Oh, I love that. It was like stepping through the back of a cupboard. Her house was an expression of her as pronounced as if she had given birth to it. Walls not so much distressed as traumatised. The effect was a satanic woodcut of blackened hearts and bare stains, a howl of gothic masonry and animal remains. Dinner was eaten off grey metal plates every night, flirting with lead poisoning. The table was shared with a vast buffalo skull, horns the size of a paddling pool, whilst hanging from the ceiling were human hair dolls, loosely woven into her body shape, like voodoo Oscars for the scariest dinner. She installed me in the moon room, a shockingly white box containing nothing but a bed and a sash window, at least until the morning when I awoke to a twig cage she'd hung above my head in the night. Suspended from branches inside muslin walls were five cocoons, which would eventually hatch Indian lunar moths, soft, herbal green and enormous, that laid little round eggs on the walls and windows. Trying to formulate what we love, we find ourselves talking nonsense. It is a slippery, dancing thing. Lily was as graceful as a classical sculpture, but had an equal capacity for demented outbursts. And these are what sung straight into my heart. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. 
Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Support for the Hilo comes from Babylon Storen's new Morvedre Rosé. With summer around the corner and green spaces opening up, it is definitely seasonally appropriate to crack open the rosé. Be the first to taste the new 2020 vintage of Babylon Storen's Mourvedre Rosé with hints of raspberry and rose petals. An elegant dry wine from their beautiful gardens in the Cape Winelands of South Africa. If you buy three or more bottles of 2020 Babylon Storen Mourvedre Rosé, you get a 500ml tin of their extra virgin olive oil as a gift. Go to thenewt.co.uk forward slash the high Thank you to Babylon Storen's Mourvedre Rosé. about I May Destroy You by Michaela Cole, Dolly. Oh, yes. Oh, my God. Anyone who's listening to this who hasn't watched this programme, go on iPlayer now and watch it as an absolute imperative. I don't think I've ever seen something of its ilk. I think it is just phenomenal. What episode are you on, Panda? Now, hold the phone. I thought the BBC iPlayer wasn't offering them all, so I've only been able to watch two so far. So I've watched four. There are four on iPlayer. I can't believe I didn't know that. I I think some new ones must have come out yesterday. I was desperate to watch more. It was really interesting not being able to binge on the whole series on iPlayer. And I think it's going to, I think it's really going to work in its favour. I think it works in most series favour, not being able to binge it in one. This is just personal, but I have been so deeply affected by watching this program I have been horrified moved brought to tears I've laughed my jaw has hung open it is such an impactful in parts harrowing series I I just don't think it's one to gobble up in one I think that I'm I certainly have needed to take my time with it it's it's almost too good and and too yeah impactful to watch in one sitting it's uh, as I say I've never seen anything like it I think it really defies summary because it's funny and actually it's a bit like what I was just saying about Rick's book it's it's funny and it's graphic and it's shocking and it's sad it's and actually the first episode is it's quite hard to get a handle on when she's busy kind of setting everything up should we say what it's about i've just realized for people who aren't listening yeah <laughs> yeah listening. With the, so this because you've only watched two episodes we won't have any spoilers in this one maybe next week we can do a bit more of a deep dive into the episodes so michaela cole um created a brilliant series in 2016 called chewing gum which won a bafta this show is based on a true experience that she had while writing chewing gum in 2016 when Michaela was assaulted by a group of strangers. Uh, She was spiked and um, she later realised she'd been sexually assaulted. It took her two and a half years to write it and she was unable to write anything else during that time, she says. She told the BBC that she found it cathartic writing it, but that obviously it was an extremely long process. And the series is about 
a writer called Arabella who became famous for writing a sort of millennial memoir and now she's kind of struggling to write her follow-up book being hounded by her agents and to sort of ex- escape the pressure of writing she goes and has a big night out and um the series then goes on from there as she pieces together what's happened um in it's about i think it's about so much more than sexual assault though i mean that is the thing that is for me most effective and most shocking but there are so many other things that are being explored in it i think a lot of it is about being a millennial i really do think a lot of that program is exploring the anxieties and the malaise of of our generation in a way that's so specific and ha- I haven't seen before. Like how many fucking times have I read books or <laughs> indeed written a book <laughs> or watched programs or listened to people dissect the millennial experience? And I think that I would never have anticipated it would be something that I would want more conversation on and she's just managed to like crack open this this whole other side to the millennial experience and what happens now as a generation in transition is a generation that is no longer the youngest child of the world and is now heading into you know the second act of their life it's I think it's so sophisticated and I think it's so intelligent and I also just think Bella as a protagonist is unlike any protagonist I've seen before. Her energy is so unique and complex and real to me. It's the, it's such a well-drawn and performed character. She's electric on screen. Exactly um, the word, yeah. It's. I think it's about showing a different type of woman on screen. Mm. So she lives a chaotic life. We've seen that on screen loads. But with confidence and conviction, she's not before this horrible thing happens to her she's not lonely she's not lost she's not looking to be saved and and I found what she said about this um really inspiring it was in that same BBC interview she said um that the people in my show are incredibly brave and they live in their freedom and in their authenticity I don't let fear govern my life And I think that's maybe something a lot of people in my age bracket can identify with. Now, I don't actually agree with that. I think a lot of um, our generation do live with fear. And that's why I thought it was so inspiring to see someone on screen who was fearless and who didn't doubt her choices Mm. and wasn't made to feel or didn't let people make her feel like she was anything less. Yeah, it's radical and... It's just so fresh. It's just so new. I've, as, I'm sorry, I keep saying this. I've never seen anything like it. And honestly, Pandora, when you watch episode three, there are depictions of certain experiences that I think are never shown really truthfully from a female perspective ever in art or literature or comedy or TV or drama. And they are scenes that I, with no exaggeration, will remember forever. I can't wait to talk to you about them. Also stood out to me for another reason, which feels important to mention because it shouldn't be so rare as to stand out. But I think this is the first British 
black majority cast show I've ever seen on mainstream telly or on BBC iPlayer, which is set in a distinctly middle class setting and isn't about race. Of course, it's about race because everything is about race. But what I mean by that is it's not like um, the characters aren't there to function as some sort of uh, discourse or diversity. Yeah. And I think that what it does so well is the race of those characters are barely spoken about or commented on or othered uh, through the hand of the screenwriter or director but their race and their culture and their identity is the very bones of the character so it, it doesn't need to be signposted because it's just a really authentic truthful depiction of black characters yeah like when Bella's best friend says where's your headscarf when she's going to bed and then Bella you know ties her headscarf around her head and I thought wow, that is vanishingly rare to see that it is, on yeah. primetime telly. And also for it to be expected that, like, we should fucking know what that means. And if mm. we don't, we should fucking Google it. Like, we don't need to have someone, like, explain their identity and culture to us. And, yeah, there was another really subtle but kind of key scene, isn't there, for the sort of um, microaggression of uh, Bella's best friend being asked to take off her wig. And she's like, um, yeah. might do for you another day, but actually, I haven't done my hair. Um, I haven't yeah. done my hair underneath, and I, I don't really want to take my hair off. Like, this is my hair, it's human hair. And I thought that was a really deftly and quietly powerful bit as well. Um, mm. it, does, mm. it, does, it does so much, this show. And I've only just seen people starting to talk about it, because it's, like, brand new, but the people I have seen talking about it have been like us, almost like shell-shocked, like, wow, what is this yeah. tornado yeah. of a programme that's been made? And thank God it's finally been made. Um, anyway, yeah. she's, she's amazing, Michaela Cole. I'm completely in, in her thrall at the way her brain yeah. I, I think this I think this programme, it already is beloved. And I hope that it's held up and acknowledged and praised in the same way other beloved programs have been over the last few years yeah me too have you got a podcast roundup for me yeah i've got a podcast roundup for you pandora i loved laura marling on song exploder this is a new podcast i've just discovered which is so so good it's a deep musical and lyrical analysis of a song deconstructed and explained by the person who wrote and performs it my entry level episode was Laura Marling speaking about Song for Our Daughter from her latest album of the same name. But there's a wealth of other amazing episodes with artists such as Tame Impala, Michael Kiwanuka, Robin, Janelle Monet, and Lindsay Buckingham of Fleetwood Mac. In Laura Marling's episode, she delves into the complexity of the lyrics to this song and the storytelling in this song about how it was inspired by having her personal boundaries trampled on uh, as a younger woman, as well as referencing a tragic classical story and talking about who this figurative daughter is that she speaks to in the song. She also isolates every line of the melody and talks through each instrument, why she chose that arrangement, who she asked to do it and why and where it was recorded. I no, that might sound a little bit dry. It is so rich and informative. I have listened to it three times now. I find it 
magical to observe all the kind of various components of a song, understanding the kind of fullness of each line and then listening to how they amalgamate and enmesh and and what that kind of sonic story is collectively. I just found it completely beautiful. If you're looking to flesh out sort of emotional points of a song, if you're in my genre of music, you either do that with backing vocals or with strings. So there's a lot of choral backing vocals and beautiful strings by Rob Moose. And he is a very familiar sound to lots of people now because he's done Bon Iver, Anoni, Paul Simon. So I had put these kind of very elementary string pads on the demo as a kind of point of reference of where I might imagine strings coming in and and sort of where they might be useful. And then I sent it to, to Rob And I said, oh, we're on a bit of a tight deadline, as we always are, and a tight budget, as we always are. And uh, would you do this in the cheapest, uh, quickest way you possibly can? And he sent back to us a message saying, I hope you don't mind, but but the approach that I took was embodying the, the daughter, the character of the daughter. I sort of envisioned her rising up above you and being this effective presence in the song. done such an incredibly empathetic job it just I listened to it you know on those huge speakers at the desk in the studio and I burst into floods and floods of tears I couldn't believe it I loved an episode of Radio 4's The Food Programme which focused on how food is used in film. Presenter Leila Kazim meets with Gurinda Chadha, who is a director and who often includes food and cooking in her films, such as Bend It Like Beckham, in which Indian dishes like Alu Gobi become a metaphor in the story. I think it was even the strap line on the film's poster um, that the protagonist, Jess's mother, wants her to learn how to cook these dishes as a way of affiliating with the traditions of her culture more. And so she talks about how important food can be for her as a narrative tool and for kind of unlocking things about families and relationships. Uh, but she also talks about the logistics of shooting eating, which is famously a nightmare, and why you very rarely see scenes on film or TV of people eating at a dinner table. You see them just about to begin a meal or just finish one. And Layla also speaks with Olivia Potts and Kate Young, who run a TV-themed supper club, which just sounds so nutty and inventive and wonderful. They uh, talk through some of the, the menus and the planning that they've done in accordance with each theme. And they describe doing a Friends-themed one in which they include the famous trifle that Rachel makes that's half trifle, half shepherd's pie. And they recreated it by using chocolate soil to replicate mincemeat and green, I think it was gummy bears and orange gummy bears to replicate the carrots and peas, um, which I just thought was Willy Wonka levels of innovation. Oh my God, people who cook like that are so inspiring to me because I lack both the 
wherewithal, wherewithal? I don't think I know how to say yep. that word. The wherewithal <laughs> and the talent. To, like, I wouldn't even know where to begin with that. Um, that's uh, that's amazing. And I've always, I, honestly, I can't even think about that trifle without wanting to throw up. I know. I know. Chocolate soil sounds... Uh... That's fine. It's just the... Sh- it's the jelly and the, it's like the textural combination. Um, no, you're right. But you're that's right. such a good recommendation. Thank you. I also listened to Jerry Seinfeld on WTF and this was a really strange one, but definitely worth listening to if you're a fan of either Mark Maron or Jerry Seinfeld. Mark Maron tragically lost his partner, the director Lynn Shelton, last month and he's still doing his regular WTF episodes. He's sharing some of his grieving process, some of it I'm sure he's keeping entirely private Their episode with Jerry Seinfeld was the first interview he'd done since Lynn passed away because initially he was just doing an intro up top talking about how he was and then he would play an older interview. But this was the first one he's done since her death, which is a big one. Seinfeld is arguably the biggest comedian of our time, certainly in America, and he's never done an interview with him before, which is weird because Mark Maron's podcast has interviewed every big comedian over, you know, I think they're on like thousands of episodes now. So there has always been this like gaping hole of why hasn't Jerry Seinfeld come on to speak to him? And it is a funny old dynamic to listen to. They do, Mark is very analytical and he's quite neurotic, self-confessed he's a neurotic. He likes the deconstruction of things and he likes the the nitty gritty of things and and kind of really putting things under a microscope and analyzing them and he wants to do that with Seinfeld about comedy what makes something funny and Seinfeld just won't just won't do it he won't enter into a conversation about the science of comedy or the formula of comedy um and I I think it's probably just because he's really bored of having to talk about it but he is of this opinion which is you're either funny or you're not and there's nothing to be gained from studying what creates something that is as nebulous and abstract and magical and ephemeral as comedy and laughter. And Mark finds that, I think, a bit stultifying in terms of conversational flow, because I think he just really wants to dig into it with him. And uh, Seinfeld it just won't really and I can't work out whether it's he's being reticent or whether he just genuinely doesn't believe that he has anything to offer in terms of analysis and then and then there's this sort of ongoing ribbing uh, from Seinfeld to Mark Maron in that Mark's comedy is very much about bringing so much of himself and his story to the stage and a lot of it's cathartic and a lot of it's uh, tragic and a lot of it's very emotional and a lot of it's quite therapized and a lot of it's about his addiction about his family whereas um Seinfeld is like the definitive jokes man like he's a very traditional comedian in that sense and Seinfeld keeps sort of saying to him defensively well like I like getting laughs on stage you should try it it feels good. (laughs) And that just creates a bit of friction between them. Mark is very forthcoming about he's never really clicked with Jerry Seinfeld's material. And yeah, it feels like they've just sort of, 
sort of circled each other for a while. It's it's an uncomfortable and fascinating dynamic. I'm also interested that Mark wanted to do that from a place of such like grief and vulnerability. Like if I just, you know, touch wood, lost someone I loved that much, I would not want to be interviewing because it sounds like they've got a really historic rivalry. I just can't think of anything I'd rather do less. Perhaps this is part of his coping. Perhaps, yeah. you know, just distracting himself by challenging work is how he's getting through it. I, I mean, yeah. whatever, whatever works for the poor man. But I, I have just a really instinctual response to, like, awkwardness over audio. Really weird. Like, I, I can't handle yeah. it. I don't know if I'd be able to handle this. It, it is uncomfortable and they're quite combative with each other. And it's also this very strange thing that I don't think, I, I think Jerry Seinfeld from everything I've read about him, I think he seems like a lovely man, but there is this very strange opening. I think this is more exemplary of how men who don't know each other that well are so terrible at being warm and intimate with each other in a way that women are so much better in that it opens with Jerry saying he almost says it like he's setting up a joke he's like mark i'm so sorry to hear about lynn and i offer my condolences but he says it in this really strange way that i think just like i think he just felt awkward and i think it just set this slightly disconnected tone but i'm I'm making it out like it's not an enjoyable listen it is a really enjoyable listen particularly if you're someone who's interested in comedy and the history of comedy and the history of stand-up you know they talk about how the stand-up scene has changed from 80s to the present day. They talk about the club circuit. They talk about Jerry Seinfeld's infamous uh, rigour that he's known for, uh, how he kind of practices his comedy, how hard he works on his jokes, how he drafts and redrafts his punchlines. So it's a piece of comedy history, but it's definitely not an easy listen. The reason you're funny is that, you know, it's part of your ability to deflect and to charm. Yeah, I mean, I'm going to stop you at the reason. There's no reason. No? You're funny if you're funny. Yeah. And you love to be funny. If you're uh-huh. funny and you love to be funny. Yeah. You, there you go. So, okay. But <laughs> so you never, you never question the psychology of funny. No. I reject that entire premise. Really? Oh, yeah. Oh, you, yeah. You, Look at my face. Yeah. You see that I totally reject that? You're no, funny if you're funny, period. But you, so there's no why. No. If there and who and if there is, who cares? But for you, and and this goes along with it that the only risk that you run on on stage, Roy, the risk that you take, the the most frightening risk is that the joke won't work. That like what you have on the line is that is that I crafted this thing, and if it fails, I got to go back and fix it, or I got to figure out why it's not funny. That's it. Or chuck it. Right. Right. The, so the, so you don't risk any of your personality or your well-being necessarily, or do you? I, I think standing up on stage by myself and saying, I'm going to make you laugh, that's a pretty good risk, I'll say. Yeah, no, but that's what that's I'm saying. That's a pretty good yeah. risk. I okay. think the average person would say that's a little risky. I also listened to F. Hirsch on Fortunately, and this is a really interesting one. The episode begins with the usual charming and brilliant waffle from Fee Glover and Jane Garvey. And then they introduce F. and their interview, and they note that they felt that they made a mistake with their interview. So the interview is conducted either last week, 
maximum would have been the week before. So definitely in the wake of George Floyd's death and certainly in the thick of international protests. And they didn't ask Efwar about it, which felt very strange. And they admit it's strange and they examine why they didn't ask her explicitly about this current global event, which is very relevant to Efwar's work. The three of them do talk a lot about race in the conversation, but they avoided that topic specifically. Fee said she thinks it's because they maybe felt like they were two white, middle-class, privileged, silly women, quote-unquote, therefore it doesn't have anything to do with them, or they were fearful that they would say something that wouldn't ring true, which she recognised immediately is an enormous problem because their demographic is now in a moment where they have to reconsider their responsibility. We all have to reconsider our responsibility. So it was an interesting misjudgment to hear them consider. And I appreciate that consideration being done aloud. So so do I, that acknowledgement of error and um, of learning, because as you say, it, it is something that a lot of us are doing. I really, really love Efwa Hirsch. Anyone who's unfamiliar with her work, look her up on uh, the podcast library. She's done so many brilliant interviews. Read her book, Brit-ish. I love this book, both as a memoir and its historical and factual segments. Did you interview her for Love Stories? Yeah, I did. I think it's the longest interview I've ever done. I think it was like three hours we talked for. I just... I'm going to go and re-listen to that. Oh, thank you. She's just, she's so clever and just staggeringly well-informed on so many subjects. And she's just someone I would really encourage our listeners to engage with. I find her very curious and open-minded. She made so many good points in her Fortunately interview. Uh, She made interesting points on the dangers of immediately aligning left-wing ideology with anti-racism without question which is something she says she rejects. She also talked about the relived trauma that's required of black public figures every time we ask them to talk about their experiences of racism for our better understanding. And she talked about how we need to redefine in this country specifically what our definition of racism is. I think that's something we've done in Britain. We've created this very high bar for racism. Racism is the people who who killed Stephen Lawrence. You know, it's people who have violent, murderous thoughts towards people because of their race and Mm. are willing to attack them. And that is racism. But that's not the entirety of racism. That's kind of one end of the spectrum. And, you know, when black people get together, they often have conversations about the other ways in which racism permeates their lives. And I feel as if, you know... I feel as if somebody who almost has a double life, you know, I have those conversations with the black people in my life and they're totally normal, regular, daily. And then I have conversations with my white friends or with the mainstream media in which you're starting from position of having to argue for the most basic recognition that that even exists. And I feel as if the gap is closing, even if slightly, um, I'm able to have something approaching a similar conversation with everybody. And that, is small progress but it is progress should we have an ask the high low let's have an ask the high low i was wondering whether you have any tips on how to structure working on two separate things at once i study literature and the course is very full time i have around twenty thousand five hundred words of coursework to write for it before the end of august but i'm also halfway through writing my novel any tips panda just hearing twenty thousand five hundred words of coursework mm. makes me feel <gasps> 
horrified. Um, I know. I think you're deeply impressive for trying to do two things at once, um, especially two long-form writing projects. Um, in all honesty, I've actually never... I've never really done two quite similar things at the same time. Um, Dolly and I do both juggle quite a lot of different work forms. And when I was writing my book and doing the Hilo and then doing something else that I'm currently creating, I I was just really uh, strict with having like this day for this, this day for this, because my brain didn't really work doing like an hour of one project and then an hour of another one. Some people's brains really do work like that. That said, I feel a bit clueless about how to help you when you're with this because you're working on two long-form writing projects. Maybe it's just being really disciplined with your time. Oh, God, I don't think I can be very helpful on this. Dolly, what would you say? I speak as someone who has had at least three projects on the go since I was... 22 and that's not that's not a boast at all about my abilities the reason I say that is I'm really really shit at it I really don't enjoy having like the multi-hyphen career at all I often wish I didn't have to I find it a massive challenge I think that I really fail a lot at it and I have to work really really hard to um stay efficient with all of it Uh, and I still fail now. But here are the tips that I have learned over the years. First of all, as Pandora said, if you can, I don't know if you if you can do this, but it would be great if you can come up with a really rock solid schedule that you just don't bleed into. So you say, I only write my novel on a Wednesday, a Friday and a Sunday, or I only write my novel between seven and nine for two hours every morning and then I do academia for the rest of the day and if you just be so so strict about it I think it's really it helps divide your brain into these two separate compartments uh with these two separate projects and you can hold the information and divide up that information if you've divided up your time very cleanly I think when things can just feel so overwhelming and confusing and you become so unfocused is when you're like when you're sort of hopping around uh from thing to thing without any real strategy and in terms of thoughts I created a system system very grandiose it's basically just <laughs> notebooks um about oh, I do four that. years do, ago do you have different do you have I have those different like I just buy multi-packs from Muji those those like plain brown ones then you have like one for podcast one for yeah so they're all a different color and I also like try and sync that analog notebooks with my iPhone notes so on my iPhone notes there is a title for my book there is a title for the high low there's a note that's titled for a script that I'm working on there's a note that's titled for a feature that I'm writing for journalism and then that is all coordinated with these separate notebooks and then anytime I have an idea or I read something that might be useful to quote for it or, or inspire it I log it away completely separately in those different uh, books and those different iPhone notes to the point where I will experience something or someone will say something to me or I'll read something or watch something and I literally it's like finding the drawer to put it in I'm like oh okay which compartment will this serve the best and then I choose I'm like right that's one for the book or that's something to talk about on the high low or that's something for my column and I think the minute you can start like it sounds very formulaic but if you want to if you want to juggle 
projects I think it's really really difficult I think you do have to be quite formulaic so really just divide your thoughts and be boundaried and strict with those divisions and I can't believe you call me anal (laughs) I know I know Thank you for listening to The High Low. You can get in touch with us by emailing thehighlowshow at gmail.com. You can tweet us at The High Low Show. And you can shop at thehighlowshop.com where 100% of profits go to charity, 50% currently going to show racism the red card and 50% going to women's aid. We'll talk to you next week. Bye. Bye-bye. Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com.